0: Seated. I encourage you to join me now in taking your Bibles and turning with me to our passage this morning. As we are back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10. We are nearing the end of this book. As we said last week, we're entering into that part of the book and our study where we're going to be covering larger sections of passage or larger sections of these passages, or even some sometimes all the chapter. So this morning, as you look at chapter 10. It's another one of those longer passages, but about the first 27 verses are made up of a group of names. As we've said before, these names can be hard to pronounce, and I think it would be brutal for all of us to sit here and try to listen to me butcher my way through this. So we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 10 at verse 28, but I still want to encourage you at a later time to read through all those names. God has them there for a reason. This is all of God's word, all of it is breathed out by God, and these are names there for a reason. I just would encourage you to read them on your time and butcher them yourself instead of all of us doing it together. And so this morning we will look at just the last part of chapter 10. As you find that, let me pray for us now as we come before God in this time. Lord, it is our pleasure now to meet with you in this unique and special way where you speak to us through your word you tell us more about who you are and how you've created us to live for you? That this is where, in a sense, our our faith, uh, where our feet meet the road of glorifying you and enjoying you. We can only glorify you and enjoy you in all life if we uh, only first begin in glorifying you and enjoying you and hearing from you in your word. So prepare our hearts and our minds in that way this morning, Lord. Even in a passage that has some uh, difficult names and even maybe some difficult concepts for us to understand, your goodness is still there. Your grace and mercy is still being proclaimed. May we hear it and understand it in that way so you and you alone are glorified and that your joy is always our strength. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 10, we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. And that list begins by saying that on the seals are the names of the priests and the Levites, and we pick up in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers and their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year, and the exaction of every of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruit of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our, of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be of the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. The Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes, to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Man, you may be seated. As we have seen so far over the months in our study of the book of Nehemiah, the book is really broken up into two sections. The first section begins with Nehemiah getting word about uh, the disrepair of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, that the, uh, God's people, the covenant community, have been brought out of exile, brought back to Jerusalem. And so that first section is about this project led by Nehemiah and accomplished by Nehemiah and the covenant community of rebuilding and restoring the wall. And that leads us into the second section, which is about the covenant renewal of God's people, which is led by Ezra and the other priests. They needed renewal because they had been exiled for 70 years for being covenant breakers. And so chapter 10 puts us right in the middle of Nehemiah's narrative about this covenant renewal of the covenant community. And as we have seen, this is a renewal that is a process. It's not a, a one-and-done, quick shop Get it all done in one day. It's a process. It began with worship. It began with what we are doing here this morning. God's people gathered together to worship, to sit underneath the preaching of God's word. And in that word, they were being convicted of their sins. And yet Ezra and the other priests said, do not weep, do not be in sorrow. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That this time of worship, even coming out of of all these coming out of the result of all these bad things that they and their forefathers had done do not focus on that focus on the goodness of the Lord focus on the joy of the Lord and his strength that comes from that and so in that joy in the strength of that joy they take time to confess their sins and to repent where they out of a true sense of their sin and that apprehension and the mercy of God and Christ, with grief and hatred of sin, they turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavoring after new obedience. So now we are in the next part of this process of covenant renewal. And this process this morning is that they are renewing their end of the covenant that God has made with them. What has happened as they have confessed their sins and they were confessing their sins and remembering the sins of their ancestors, what they were ultimately confessing and remembering is how they, along their ancestors, had entered into a covenant of grace with God. And while God had always stayed faithful to his end of covenant, they were guilty of, his people were guilty of, breaking their end of it over and over again. And this is the story of Israel. This is the story of the covenant community in the Old Testament. We see it over and over again. They enter into a covenant, this covenant of grace with God. God stays faithful. What do they do? Uh, maybe for a little bit of time, they are faithful, but then they fall off to some kind of sin, and usually some great grievous sin they end up in. It begins small. They grow so big and big and big uh, that God has to discipline them in such a way. They come back around, but now they've reached a point in a cycle where God says, in a sense, I am done with you. And he sends his people into exile away from the city he has given to them, Jerusalem, away from the promised land that he had brought them to uh, through Moses and with Joshua. So why are they in the position they are in? Because they are from a long line of covenant breakers. Their lives were marked more by disobedience than by obedience. But they found the ways of the world and their sinful desires more pleasing than the joy of the Lord and the joy of walking with him. So it makes logical sense that they've been brought out of exile, they've been convicted of their sins, they confessed them and they repented of them, that they would want to take this formal service where they will come before the Lord to renew their end of the covenant. Their eyes have been reopened to see and understand how gracious God's covenant is. And how good and blessed it is to live in that covenant of grace. And when we talk about this covenant of grace that's being renewed here, it's the same covenant of grace that you and I live under, that all God's people have lived under since Genesis chapter 3. As our confession teaches, it was out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity that God chose some for everlasting life. And he entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of their state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. As we've talked about before, this was the covenant of grace that was first promised in Genesis 3 where after Adam and Eve had sinned and they had tried to hide from God and God brings them out, he makes this promise to them uh, that he would send forth a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. And it's this same covenant of grace that is summarized by the prophet Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's this covenant of grace that is a bond and blood sovereignly administered. And when we get to the heart of this covenant of grace, we find that the heart of it is that God is committed to his people. The covenant of grace teaches us about God's commitment to his people. Let's go back to that story in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve sinning. And if we're true with ourselves, we would have to admit that God had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth at that time. Because they had been given everything. They had been created by the very hand of God himself. And God had breathed his his breath into them to give them life. And they had everything in the garden. And every day God would come and take a walk with them around the garden. Adam and Eve had been given everything they could ever ask for. But what did they choose to do? They chose to rebel and disobey. Even having this close relationship and this fellowship with God they still chose to listen to Satan. They chose to listen to Satan and obey him instead of listening to and obeying their gracious Heavenly Father. God had every right to just wipe them off the face of the earth and say, I'm done with this. Let me start over. But that's exactly what God didn't do. God was committed to his people. He had made them. They were his image bearers. And so he, he makes a covenant. He had made a covenant with his China self to commit to saving to them, to save them. And, and when he made this covenant of grace here with them, he then gave them a sign of it, if you remember. He sacrificed innocent animals for their skin to cover, to cover the, 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 the their, their guilt of their sin, the, the, the guilt of, of being naked. So we have that sign of it. God is eternally committed to his people. And so when Jeremiah summarizes the covenant by saying, I will be your God, I think we can hear in the sense the emphasis on the will of I will be your God. It's that, that word we can take in our Bible, we can underline it and we can circle. That God says, I am committed to you. I am committed to my people. I am committed to all of my people. And he gives us the greatest sign of that commitment. And that he has delivered his people out of their state of sin and misery and brought them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. And who is that redeemer? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, the second person of the Trinity, God is so committed to us that he gave his only begotten son to suffer the penalty of our sins, to die on our behalf, to be resurrected for the surety of our resurrection. Scripture assures us. God himself assures us that there is no one who is committed to you as God is. I'd like to think that all of you here who are married are you're committed as you can be to your spouse. And you trust and believe that your spouse is as committed to you. And when we look at God's commitment to us, even these earthly commitments pales in comparison to how committed God is to you. He gave his only begotten son. And that's what beats at the heart of the covenant's. I will be your God, even if it means giving my only begotten Son, which I will do. So, this covenant that God has made with us, this covenant that's being renewed here, is the covenant of how much God has committed to us. And so, the question then is what is our response to this covenant? What is our response to God's commitments Psalm 37.5 is a good summary. Commit your way unto the Lord. We best respond to the covenant. We best respond to God's commitment to us by committing our ways to the Lord. I've been in so many Christian homes that have this cross stitch somewhere in their house, that verse from Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And again, where's the emphasis in that? What an emphasis is on will, we will serve the Lord. There's no ifs, ands, or buts to it. But because Joshua and his family know God, they know him in and through this covenant of grace, they say with all sorts of certainty that they will serve the Lord. Even our book of worship, our book of prayers, the book of Psalms, opens with that declaration of commitment. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That's commitment. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. All he does, he prospers. We begin worship in the book of Psalms with this this proclamation, this declaration of our commitment to God. Then of course we think of Jesus saying to him very simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when, when Jesus looks to us for a sign of our love for him, what's that sign? A valentine once a year? Casually coming in and out, whenever, say, hey, God, you're pretty cool with me, I love you. Sign of commitment is if you love Jesus you will keep his commandments. The only response of faith we can have and known as commitment of the Lord is faith and obedience. We love him because he first loved us. And we follow him because as the the, the choir sang for us this morning, he is our good shepherd who leads us and guides us and provides for us. And it's really that simple. Our response is that simple. We trust and obey, yet we also know it's that hard as well. We empathize with Paul when he says that he is the chief of sinners. Don't we all feel like that sometimes? How wretched of a sinner I really can be. We understand when Paul says when he wants to do right, he ends up sinning. And when he doesn't want to sin, he finds that sin is right there encouraging him along. Our end of the covenant can seem so simple. Until we start dealing with our sinful nature. And we realize how deeply rooted sin can be in our minds and our hearts. And how much this sin will disrupt our commitment to the covenant of grace. I think every Christian is a jackal and hide in this sense. We want to be committed, yet we don't want to be committed at the same time because of how deeply rooted our sins can be. And it seems that in recent years and generations, this idea of commitment to the Lord, being fully committed to the Lord, has become more and more of an anathema in the church. We will commit ourselves to other things, work, school, vacation activities. If your, if your job calls for you to be there Monday through Friday from 9 to 5, you're going to do be there Monday through Friday 9 to 5 unless you have vacation or a sick day. If your child needs to have X amount of days at school in order to graduate, you're going to have your child there X amount of days at school so they can graduate. If you've booked a vacation and you've laid a deposit on it, you're going to make sure uh, that you can go on that vacation. We have no problem with commitments Until it seems at times where we talk about commitment to the Lord and to his church. Most of us have taken this membership vow. I promise to support the worship and work of the Lord to the best of my ability. Actually, it says that I promise to support the worship and work of the church to the best of my ability. It's a vow of commitment. Many of us stood right down here in front of this covenant community, in front of our covenant God said, Lord, I vow to be committed. It's a vow of committed faith. I'm vowing to be committed to this church. Vera played sports. She probably had a coach who said, I don't want 100%. I want 110%. I want 150%. And what's that saying? I want you to be fully committed. If you're, if you're going to play this sport, you need to be committed. You need to be at practice. You need, to, you need to do this training. You need to eat and have a diet in such a way. You need to be at the games. You need to be committed to this. how much are we giving to the church? We'll look at this in a a big general picture. How many Christians have the attitude, I am committed to the church until something else I want to do comes up. I will be committed to Christ and his bride until I find something else I would rather do. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. My commitment will only go so far. And where does that sort of commitment get us? Well, we're reading about it right now, aren't we? We see the results of it for the Old Testament people. God, in a sense, reached his limits. And he said, i exile you. Away from the temple, from where my presence is in the Holy of Holies. Away from the city I have given to you and the wall built up around it, Away from the promised land I have given to you when your forefathers, your ancestors, were in slavery to Egypt. God was committed to his people. We see that over and over again in the Old Testament and over and over again, we see how uncommitted the Israelites were to him. The golden calf, foreign gods, worthless idols, rampant and unrepentant sins. Over and over again, the Israelites showed their lack of commitment to God and to his covenant and led to discipline and exile. And I think if we could go back and talk to these people here, they would say, "I wish we had done it differently. I wish my parents had done it differently. I wish my grandparents had done it differently. It wasn't worth it." The covenant-breaking wasn't worth what we went through. And their example stands as a warning as a warning for us. That we need to be committed to the Lord. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, we're like Paul. We're the chief of sinners. We're going to struggle with sins and we're going to fail, but we always have that goal of commitment. All of you who are married stood in front of the church and altar, and he made a commitment that through uh, through sickness and through de- and, and, and health, goodness and and all, and I forgot the vows, but ultimately we all made a vow to our spouse. That we are going to be committed to them. Have you always been perfect in that? No. Has your spouse always been perfect in that? No. Does that mean you leave the marriage? No. We're sinners. And we're going to fail. But we always have that goal of commitment. And the same is true with the covenant. We are to live with the goal of being God's covenant people and community. We often can bemoan the growing lack of Christianity in our world and the lack of people going to church. But maybe it's because the world sees in the church a lack of commitment to the God who is is so committed to his people. Why should they respect a faith in a people who can have such a disrespect for the God who so loved them, so committed to him that he gave his only begotten son? There needs to be a commitment To walk in God's law, to observe and do all that God's commands to do. There's a commitment to put our way unto the Lord. And what's interesting is we see that the Israelites don't just kind of say this kind of general and willy nilly and let's go on with life. They they specify certain areas. They looked over their lives and they said, this is where we need to improve. The first was marriage. Interestingly enough, verse 30. God's people wanted their marriages to be more honoring unto the Lord because they had been guilty of marrying outside their faith, of giving their children away to mixed marriages. And these mixed marriages had led down to the watering down the faith of the Lord to where it was practically nothing. You know, one of the great examples we have that is, is of Solomon. That Solomon was known to, to be the, the, the most wise of all people on all the earth. And he ends up marrying the, all these women and concubines, having all these women and all these concubines and they're from outside the faith. And what ends up happening, because of their lack of faith, because they weren't Christians, they have Solomon to eventually turn away from the faith. And, and, and so, and so the Israelites here are saying, "We're sorry. We, we we have married outside the faith." So they covenanted that their marriages would be more honoring to the Lord, that both spouses would be committed to the Lord and walking with them. Their second covenant obligation was the Sabbath day, verse thirty-one. They realized for generations that they didn't see the Sabbath day as, as a day from the Lord and a day to delight in. It just become like any other day of the week to them. They would go out and, and they would and make purchases and they would sell things. It just become like any other day of the week to them. And then he said, oh Lord, we're, we're going to commit this day to you. This is a day from you that we're going to commit to worship and to resting in you. A day for us to, to gather in the worship of you, to, to, to rest from our worldly duties and cares and to see how we can best serve our neighbors. They had committed themselves to delighting in the Lord's day. And then finally, they covenanted to be better stewards of the temple. And that begins verse 32 and onward. They go with all these details. They are convicted that they had not taken taken better care of their place of worship. They were not good tithes. They did not give good tithes and offerings. They wanted to spend their money on other things. Well, it's interesting. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. Back up a few, a few, a few chapters. People who are covenanting to give more money to the church are same people who are living in poverty. They are giving up, giving up clothes, nicer clothes, our home, our, anything else. In order to give to the temple. They want their place of worship to visually be a glory to God and all of his goodness. There's much we can learn from their example. We live in a society where marriage is attacked from almost every conceivable angle. And yet we as God's people are called to be committed to biblical marriage. We are to be committed to loving our spouses as God has called us to. To fulfill our end of the covenant with God and how we view and treat our marriages. And, what, and, and what, are, what are our marriages supposed to be a picture of? It's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. It's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Do people see Jesus in you as, their, as a spouse in your marriage? For what you were responsible for in the marriage, do you contribute to it being a bright beacon of God's goodness and mercy? Are we raising our children to understand that Christians are called to marry other Christians? We need to be committed to biblical marriage, even when biblical marriage is being attacked so much in our society. And the Sabbath day, is this the day we delight in? Is it, is it a day we are committed to above all else? Can we take Joshua's saying and we say it for ourselves, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord on the Lord's day. I would say what the world needs to see now are Christians who are joyfully committed to the Lord's Day. That our family and neighbors know that on Sunday morning, they know where you're going to be. You're going to be at church. You're going to be worshiping with your covenant family here at Bethel. We as God's people are called to be committed to the Lord's Day. We're called to be committed to our church. Several weeks ago, when, when, when Bootsy was out, we had a guest organist after service, she she pulled me aside and she said, I wanted to tell you this. Y'all have one of the most beautiful sanctuaries I've ever seen. And y'all have taken such good care of it. And to me as an outsider, to me as a visitor, it shows your love and commitment to God through the way you take care of your church. And that stuck with me. And I think that's something for y'all to be commended on. That there is this commitment to take care of the place where we worship. But it's not to stop there. Because it, at the end of the day, this is just a building. It's a beautiful building. At the end of the day, it's just a building. And we need to be committed to the mission of this church as it's defined by God, to gather his people together for worship, for us to be equipped to go out to the world to share the gospel with whoever God puts into our path. That is our commitment to the church. The details and the extent of the commitment and sacrifice of the people of Israel here are breathtaking. They made this covenant that was of the most serious nature. Faith to them was not a trifling matter. It was not something to be engaged in on Sunday morning and then quickly forgotten. It was life-changing. It was total in scope from marriage to time to money, Everything was held in stewardship to the Lord to be used for him and for his kingdom. May you and I have that same commitment to the faith that God has entrusted to us, this covenant that he has made with us, so our lives are marked by living the blessings of the covenant of grace that God has made with each of us. Let's pray.